This evening's reading is from Daniel chapter 1 and can be found on page 883 of the Bibles in front of you. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there, until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Well, Happy New Year. Yeah, okay, sounding enthusiastic for (laughs) 2019. 
I don't know if you're a positive New Year person, whether it brings you joy or whether you're a bit like me and you think, here we go again. <laughs> but uh, let's pray as we begin this evening. Gracious God, sovereign God, we have just been singing that your son is now standing in the place of honour, crowned with glory on the highest throne. And yet as we gather around your word this evening, we are thankful for your grace that stoops down to speak to us through your word. And so we pray that as you, by your spirit, speak to us this evening, you give us ears to hear and you would encourage us on in our walk with you. Amen. Well, do turn back to Daniel chapter 1, page 883. And I wonder as we begin this year, what you would like to achieve in 2019. Uh, Get fitter, learn a musical instrument, clear out the attic, lose weight, write a novel, uh, get a promotion, retire perhaps. Go on a cruise? Swim with dolphins? No? Okay. I don't know if you're the resolution-making type, but uh, here's a resolution that I think we could all make. It's to resolve to stand for Christ. It's not particularly glamorous, is it? It doesn't sound like a particularly fun. It's not the sort of thing you'd boast to your mates about, you know, when anyone says, oh, have you made any New Year's resolutions? Yeah, this year I'm going to resolve to stand for Christ. doesn't quite have the punch, does it? But I don't think there would be many better resolutions that we can make this year than that. The problem with most resolutions is they're incredibly hard to keep. That's always my experience. Uh, maybe already post-Christmas thinking healthy, eating good, healthy food, bit of exercise, uh, already perhaps you've blown it. And if not, in two weeks' time, well, if you're like me, you'll be back on the junk food. Keeping New Year's resolutions is hard. And to be honest, resolving to stand for Christ isn't much easier, is it? It's hard, it, it might well be costly, and that's because we live in a world under pressure, under pressure to conform and blend into the world around us. And of all the biblical characters, I suspect Daniel would be one who could resonate with that pressure. The pressure of trying to practice faith in a pagan world. To to live in a world as a Christian, a world that has rejected and replaced God. It's a big task. It's a hard task. Daniel understood it, and the first, the first two verses of Daniel chapter 1 set the scene for us. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. This is the consequences of over many years, God's people had rejected the one true God, and instead had turned to idols, turned to other so-called gods. They had rejected God's warnings through his prophets to turn back to God. And eventually God says, enough's enough. 
You're going to feel the consequences for your rejection of me. And so God allows Nebuchadnezzar and the, the Babylonian forces in his commands to invade and to rip apart what was left of Israel, now just the southern kingdom of Judah. This is a huge moment in the history of God's people of Israel. Some people are left in the land to work it, to maintain it, to provide income for Babylon. But many of the people are are carried off far from home to a new city. It's hard for us to imagine what that is like, but imagine after the Second World War, if Germany had won that war, and then a whole load of us were all carted off to Germany, taken away from our homes, our livelihoods, lost everything. If you can just begin to grasp how that might have felt, you'll get a little inkling into how God's people were feeling in this moment. And some of the first people to be uprooted were the elite. Look at verse 4. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Do you have one of those friends who's annoyingly good at everything? (laughs) I've got one of those. He's incredibly bright and well-educated. He's a brilliant musician. He plays numerous instruments. He's a great sportsman. He's a sharp biblical thinker and Bible teacher. And just to top it off, he's really good looking. Apparently, that's what I've been told. People like my friends were the first people to be carried off to Babylon. Because they, people like him, are the people who are going to lead and shape everyone else. You get the elite, the rest of Israel will come with them. And so this elite crew, verse 4, they are taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. In verse 5, they are trained for three years. I guess this is, if you like, the equivalent of three years in the University of Babylon. With a guaranteed entry into the civil service, in the king's service. And given their importance to the Babylonian Empire, these four guys, and no doubt others, were treated well. They were assigned a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. But don't be deceived. What's going on here is is more than just education. This is about assimilation. This is about these elites being absorbed into Babylonian culture so that they become part of it. The aim is that they lose their identity, that they change their identity. They become Babylonians. Which is why in verse 6 we see that their names are changed. Names, their original names that had some sort of reference to God, are changed to names that commentators suggest have some sort of reference to Babylonian gods. As you read through Daniel 1, this is all presented in a very matter-of-fact way, isn't it? But this would have been huge. The aim is that their faith and culture would be erased and they would become almost new people. But, verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. 
I was really struck as I was preparing tonight that this is really quite a funny thing to make a stand on, isn't it? They had their names changed. They had been culturally indoctrinated in a place far from home against their wills. They'd been re-educated. And Daniel chooses to make a stand on one of the few perks to their new life. The food and the wine. I mean, I can imagine making a stand on anything, but surely not the fry-up and the three-course meal. (laughs) Why the food? Well, there are a few theories. The first theory is that, according to Jewish law, the food they were being served was unclean. But I think there's a problem with that, because only certain foods in the Old Testament were unclean. So why do they not eat any meats? And why no wine? Well, secondly, another theory is that the food has been offered in the worship of idols beforehand. And so Daniel and his mates don't want to eat food that has been associated with another so-called god. Well, that would make sense. But actually, a number of commentators question that idea. Why wouldn't all the food have been offered to so-called gods? Why not... Why not the vegetables as well? Why just the meat? And why not the wine? See, I wonder if there's another reason going on here, why Daniel resolves not to defile himself on the food. And I wonder if we get a clue at the end of Two Kings. Just turn back with me to page 399. Three hundred ninety-nine. At the end of Two Kings, this is basically documenting the Babylonian invasion and what happens afterwards. Look at verse 27 down the bottom there. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the year of evil, Medrach became king of Babylon. He released Jehoiakim from prison on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honour higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived. Jehoiakim was king when when, um, Nebuchadnezzar invaded. So he's taken off to Babylon. He is imprisoned there. And then 27 years later, we read this. Sorry, 37 years later. Jehoiakim now has a seat of honour in the Babylonian Empire. And what does it look like to have a seat of honour? It looks like eating at the king's table. Interesting. I wonder if it could just be that inviting someone to eat at a table is, is a sign of welcome, it's a sign of friendship, it's a sign of peace. Accepting the king's invitation is a sign of loyalty, a sign of deference, a sign of commitment, a sign of dependence. I mean, there really is no such thing as a free lunch, is there? There's no such thing as a free lunch in Daniel chapter 1. And Jehoiakim accepts this invitation because, well, he's rejected God a long time ago. But Daniel doesn't. Daniel doesn't because despite all that he has been through, 
There is only one king that he will serve. Only one king that he wants to be honoured by. And that's God. He's happy to be educated and trained, but his commitment, his allegiance, his dependence remains to God. And not eating the king's food was perhaps one way of showing that allegiance. His identity, Daniel resolves, will always be as one of God's people. So how does Daniel then practice faith in a pagan world? How does he resolve to stand? Well, he resolves not to defile himself with the food... But perhaps you could sum his attitude up like this. He doesn't withdraw from the world, but he resolves to stand for God. He doesn't withdraw from the world, but resolves to stand for God. The challenge for God's people today is fairly obvious, isn't it? Those of us whose identity is in Christ, those of us who've been forgiven by Christ, recreated in Christ, given a new identity... Well, as we begin this new year, will we commit to not withdrawing from the world, but resolving to stand for God? Daniel's example here in chapter 1 is really helpful because it, it steers us away from two dangers, withdrawing and conforming. Some of us will be tempted to withdraw from the world, to spend all our time with Christians, to not go to certain places or do certain activities, to keep our kids away from anything that could lead them astray. And sometimes that's right. For others, the temptation will be to conform, to be involved in the world to the extent where we don't look anything different, where we fail to stand as Christians, but instead we just join in with the sin of the world. Daniel is a great example for us because he doesn't withdraw or conform, but resolves to stand for God. When I read through Daniel chapter 1, I particularly think of those uh, younger folk who are heading off to university for the first time. Faced with the decision of being in a new place and a new culture and that choice of, am I going to resolve to stand for God, to be a Christian at university? And I think perhaps one of the biggest challenges for those young folk at university is in the, uh, is in the sports teams, university sports teams. Back in my day, um, the, most sports teams had an initiation. It would involve getting first years to drink copious amounts of alcohol and then humiliating them with various different challenges. They were pretty disgusting evenings, with an incredible amount of peer pressure to conform. Uh, They were so bad, I think actually they were dangerous, that a lot of university authorities now have tried to clamp down on these initiations. A lot of pressure to conform. And even if you get through the initiation, well then there's the weekly club night after the games, which is often, I think, the most debauched night of the university social life. And yet when I arrived at university, I saw several Christians who were committed to play university sport. How did they do it? 
Well, they resolved to stand. They, they didn't withdraw. They often went to some of those nights. But at the same time, they didn't, didn't conform. Some didn't drink. Some limited, drank a limited amount. Others left early. And on the initiation night, some decided they wouldn't go. Others went to be there, but refused to take part. Others took part, but refused to drink alcohol, and instead volunteered to drink some disgusting concoction of non-alcoholic drinks that would often induce vomit. It's not very nice. And these were a huge example to me, because these guys and girls resolved to stand for Christ in a most pressured situation. When as a first year fresher, you are desperate to fit in to the culture and be accepted by the people around you. And that's scary. Resolving to stand for Daniel would have also been scary. We think of these big names in the Bible and we sometimes, sometimes think make them superhuman. They weren't. They were ordinary human beings. Making this stand for Daniel would have been a scary moment. I mean, it's scary for the chief official, isn't it? If the chief official refused to allow Daniel to eat vegetables because he was too scared, verse 10, just imagine how scary and risky it must have been for Daniel. The king had no loyalty towards Daniel. It's an example to us, isn't it? Resolving to stand in 2019 will often feel risky, scary, costly. How will people react? Will people treat me differently? But Daniel's identity means that he, he knows he, he can't do anything else. Because he knows who he is. He is one of God's people. And that shapes everything. I think it's worth just noting in passing uh, how Daniel makes a stand. He doesn't throw his toys out the pram in an angry rant or protest, but he quietly asks permission to live out his faith. When the chief official was, I think, sympathetic to his plight, but wasn't prepared to risk it himself, Daniel quietly moves on to the next guy down the ladder, verse 11, the guard who was an authority over him. Resolving to stand for Christ in this world doesn't need to be hostile or aggressive or angry. It can be polite and respectful. And so as we begin this year, as I've been challenged, I hope you are challenged too. Will you and I resolve to stand for God this year? These are challenging verses for us as we begin the year. However, however, Daniel chapter 1, and in fact the whole of Daniel, is not primarily about the faith of Daniel. It's about God. You see, if Daniel 1 encourages us not to withdraw from the world, but resolve to stand, it also, more importantly, reminds us and encourages us to remember that God's is the quietly sovereign king. God is the quietly sovereign king. I mean, it seems an obvious thing to say, doesn't it? 
But actually, it's not obvious in Daniel 1, because right at the beginning of this chapter, God's kingship is thrown into doubt. God's people have been exiled to Babylon. And in this culture, if a nation has been defeated, then the implication is that God's been defeated. It's a bit like in athletics. Uh, We might say, mightn't we, that the Great Britain relay team, that the Great Britain have been defeated in the relay. Well, Great Britain hasn't been defeated, has it? But the four athletes representing us have. They represent us. It's the same here. If God's people have been defeated, then, well, God's defeated too, by implication. So at the beginning of chapter 1 of Daniel, God looks dead and buried. You can imagine all those precious articles being wheeled out of the temple and into the temple of all the Babylonian gods, cast aside. And so the question that is raised at the beginning of Daniel 1 for this chapter and for the whole book is this. Who is the sovereign king? Nebuchadnezzar and his so-called gods are the God of Israel. And the rest of Daniel is going to unpack that question. And at this point, it doesn't look like it's the God of Israel. But what we see in Daniel 1, of course, is that God is king. For throughout all these events in Daniel 1, we see that God is quietly sovereign. Look again at verse 9. You see, the chief official declines Daniel's request. But he he seems favourable to it. Why else would Daniel then go and speak to the next guy down? It's almost like he's willing to turn a blind eye. Not on my watch, but, you know, I'm not going to be a grass. Why? Well, because God had caused the official to have favour and sympathy to Daniel. God. It's God who did that. And then verse 15, at the end of uh, a week of eating vegetables, the, the four men look healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Now, I'm not going to get drawn into a discussion here on the benefits of vegetarianism or veganism in this time and age. That is dangerous waters. But for Daniel, that was a moment that God was at work. Verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. So he nourishes them, he's equipping them, he's giving them knowledge and understanding. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. God gave knowledge. Again, it's God who's at work in these chapters. Verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Who enabled them to be that? It's not them, it's God. See, all through these chapters, we see that God is quietly sovereign, even in, in a world where it really looks like he isn't. And so the chapter ends, doesn't it? Verse 21, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. I love that. See what the writer's saying? He's saying not only is God not defeated by the earthly king, but God's man on the ground actually outlasts the earthly king. God is quietly sovereign. 
not withdrawing from the world and resolving to stand this year, it will perhaps be risky and scary. And so you and I need to remember that God is the quietly sovereign king, even when it looks like the world has defeated him. And of course, these events in Daniel will not be the last time that it looks like God's king has been defeated. For years later, God's king would would hang on a cross with a, a sign above his head which said, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And he doesn't look very king-like. He looks weak and defeated. And yet as he hangs on that cross, that is his coronation ceremony. Through his death, God is quietly working out his sovereign plans to save and rescue his people. And not long before that moment, Jesus says to Pilate, if you like, the earthly sort of regional governor in that area. He says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Pilate and the angry mob look like they are defeating God's king, but nothing could be further from the truth. So let me finish with this. As we head into 2019... Let me encourage you and myself to take that risky and scary step this year of resolving to stand for Christ. And as you do, remember that God is quietly sovereign over over your life and over the whole world. For Daniel and his mates, well, they prospered. For us... Well, success is not guaranteed in this life. You may lose respect from others. You may be mocked. Some around the world will be killed for resolving to stand. And if you do prosper, it is solely down to God's grace, just like it was in the lives of Daniel and his friends. And whether we have success or failure, Christ's death reminds us that one day... God's people will forever prosper as we spend eternity with Christ, as he is revealed as king and truly rules over his kingdom for all eternity. Let's pray. Our gracious God, loving Father, We thank you for this wonderful chapter. Thank you for the the challenge it is to us. We thank you for Daniel's example. Yet more than that, we thank you for the reminder that you are sovereign and you are king. We do pray as we reflect on these truths, as we leave here, please, Lord, would you help us to know that truth to worship Christ, to resolve to stand, knowing that he is your king and he rules your world. Amen.